All right, well, good morning, everybody. Good to see everyone out this morning. If you have your Bibles with you, I encourage you to open up to Proverbs chapter 5. Proverbs chapter 5. Uh, if you're visiting with us, we are delighted to have you here. And we have been studying in this auditorium class on Sunday mornings this quarter, the book of Proverbs, and specifically Proverbs chapter 1 through 9. So we're focusing on this first main discourse in the book of Proverbs, which begins in chapter 1, verse 8, and goes through the end of chapter 9. And the context and the setting, the picture that's given in these first nine chapters is that of a father talking to his son. And the father, along with the mother's wisdom as well, stressing, preaching, pleading to the son to get wisdom, to get understanding, to get insight, no matter what the cost may be. That if you're going to get anything in the world, listen to the words of wisdom. And so what we're talking about is godly wisdom, the, the value, the incredible value of wisdom, that it is more valuable than anything that could be attained, more precious than rubies. And so the son has a fork, he's at a fork in the road, and he has a decision to make. And last week, we finished the back half of chapter 4. Um, we talked about keeping your heart with all vigilance, the famous verse 23 of chapter 4. We talked about that idea of protecting our heart as a, the idea of a spring house. And what goes into our hearts will ultimately flow out of our mouths and flow out by way of our actions. And that what goes into our hearts is highly indicative of our future. And we can't expect to fill our hearts with garbage and make a cesspool of our hearts and go around emanating perfume. That is not how this works. What goes in will come out. We talked about that anatomy of wisdom, that wisdom, once we allow it to enter into our hearts and internalize the truths of God, it will transform us. And that it, will, it is pervasive. It will affect every part of ourselves. Our speech, our eyes, our feet. Okay? Our gaze straight ahead. So there's nothing in our lives that wisdom will not touch. And then chapter 5, <clears throat> we got through about the first 9 or 10 verses last Sunday. Um, and he's brought up again this adulterous woman. And emphasizing to the son the nature of the adulterous woman, the nature of adultery in itself, how dangerous it is, the appeal of the adulterous woman, her lips drip honey, her speech is smoother than oil. Okay, it's just like the enticement of sinners in chapter 1 that we talked about. On the surface, sin seems appealing, but it's only surface deep. And the end of that path is going to be your destruction and a life that is going to be real hard because of your actions and there are consequences to your actions. And so we'll continue on and we'll pick up in about verse um, 
10 or 11 here and just kind of jump in. Before we do, let's go to God in a word of prayer. <clears throat> Dear God, our most high and holy God and Father, we are so thankful for this day that you have created. We're so thankful for the sunshine and the light of a new day and a new week before us. We pray, Lord, that you would bless us in our study of your word here this morning and allow us to internalize your truth. We pray that you would impart your wisdom into our hearts and that it would change our lives to the character and the, the image of your son and that we would be a blessing to the world because of your blessing of our lives. We're so thankful for Jesus. We are mindful of Jesus here this morning. That is the reason that we are here. Mindful of Jesus and his teachings, his life, his death, and his resurrection. And it's in Jesus' holy name that we pray. Amen. Okay. So about verse 8, we'll start reading about verse 8 of chapter 5. Keep your way far from her. Do not go near the door of her house, lest you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Lest strangers take their fill of your strength and your labors go to the house of a foreigner. Okay, so we talked last week about we're just giving away our strength. We're giving away our financial uh, labors to the, the house of a foreigner. That's a, a wasteful way of, of living. And in verse 11, at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. And you say, how I hated discipline and my heart despised reproof. I did not listen to the voices of my teachers or incline my ear to my instructors. I am at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. So we see where the adulterous situation and, and adultery leads. We see where that path leads and, and where does it lead? What do we learn here? What's the father trying to tell the, explain to the son? Where does adultery lead us? It almost describes it as a lifetime of wisdom for one fleeting moment. Lifetime of misery? Absolutely. Uh, the son and you think all younger people need to understand that there are consequences to our actions, but there are long-term consequences to our actions. Um, things that we say, things that we do, places we go, people we do them with, when we are young, have a lasting impact on our lives. And these decisions and poor decisions that we make are creating traces in our character that we will wrestle with for the rest of our lives. And I'm not asking for a show of hands, but I'll just tell you from my experience that that has been true in my life. There are things that I did when I was younger that I'll never forget. And I think about every day. And even though the Lord may forgive you of this sin, you are still going to suffer the earthly consequences. 
that it, it's a, an irrevocable law of nature. Um, at the end of your life, you groan when your flesh and body are consumed. So what does this tell us about the state that we would find ourselves in, in, in verses 12 and 13 and 14? Yes, sir. Back in, in uh, 9, it says, let you give your honor to others and your years to the merciless. Now, later on, he's looking back at a life where he has given his honor away. In other words, he has dishonored his life. So a lot of times, you know, we, we see it in presidents. We see it in everybody. When, when their honor leaves them, what do you right yeah you, you you're um just not as just realizing that plan and purpose that god has for you uh once you have in in the context of chapter five once you've committed this sin the power of god is muted in your life you're not going to be the influence and the impact on the world that god has called you to uh, because people are going to think of this sin when they think of you. They're going to think of adultery. Uh, verse 12, 13, and 14, this is just tremendous regret, um, sorrow. We've talked already in these first few chapters of Proverbs about peace and sleep and how the Lord wants that for his people. Um, there's no peace. I'm at the brink of utter ruin in the assembled congregation. And what does that imply? Loss of influence. Who is the assembled congregation? Which are? God's people. You, you're, this, is, these, this individual is, is in the worshiping assembly of God's people. And God's people know better. And so there is shame. Uh, there's judgment, a picture of judgment from God's people. Okay? So you're going to get found out. And realizing this pitiful condition that you will bring yourself to by committing this sin... Should it not be a motivation to not do it? Um, this path of wickedness is, is no good, and it's going to lead you somewhere to where you absolutely don't want to go. It's amazing. You've seen children or young people who don't want to obey their parents. They don't want to follow the rules. And you want to read this passage to you because later in their life, they're going to realize Absolutely. It seems to be a, a, definitely a theme in these first few chapters of Proverbs of stressing to the, the son and the story to realize that you're not giving up anything by having by living your life according to your father's discipline and according to God's wisdom. Um, it's a myth that you would be 
giving up any sort of joy or pleasure or long-term fulfillment because it does not exist in the path of folly, in the path of wickedness. It's just the opposite of what they think. It's exactly the opposite. That's absolutely true. And so younger in life, younger people, it's so much easier to, to heed this warning when you're young rather than eventually get to a point to where you uh, start to calcify in your foolish ways. So learn this while you're young. Your life will be a lot easier and much easier. Uh, and again, this protective nature of wisdom that we continue to see. Wisdom of God is to protect us in our lives and to allow our lives to be as full of joy and freedom uh, and, and as peaceful as it can be both here and in the life to come. And so younger people have to understand there are consequences to your actions and that we can't, you can't just go about life doing whatever you want to do. Um, and I think younger people, especially this free-spirited, just go out and do whatever, I'll, you know, it's procrastinating responsibility for some other time. But yet, that free-spirited, wild animal is not what built this country, okay? It was the domesticated animal that was yoked to a plow and was set to accomplish a task at hand. Um, so there's no productivity on the, the path of just getting up every day and doing whatever it is you want to do. Heed the Father's warning and heed the Word of God, the source of wisdom. In verse 15, drink water from your own cistern, flowing water from your own well. Should your springs be scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be blessed and rejoice in the wife of your youth, a lovely deer, a graceful doe. Let her breast fill you at all times with delight. Be intoxicated always in her love. Why should you be intoxicated, my son, with a forbidden woman and embrace the bosom of an adulteress? What's your observation there? Yes, sir. Lest his son be confused that any, um, any intimate relationships with a woman are wrong, he really <clears throat> says here, Stick to your wife. Yes. Drink out of your own sister. Right. This is where it belongs. And enjoy it. You think of the New Testament and the warnings against lusting and uh, the desires of the flesh, but here he's saying you can do those things, but with your wife. These, any joy, uh, any pleasure that comes from your spouse, you've got it at home. Be intoxicated, be enraptured, be carried away with your wife and at home. Okay, drink water from your own cistern. Should your springs be scattered abroad? Okay, these springs of life. Uh, and you think of uh, ancient Israel, this is an arid climate. So water poured out in the streets, that is incredibly wasteful. Water is incredibly valuable. So don't waste the blessings of your life and the blessing that you should be for your spouse. Uh, but rather, bless your wife. In verse 18, rejoice in the wife of your youth. 
Um, again, we're not giving up anything by sticking to the path of wisdom. Absolutely. Yes, sir. Isn't it amazing that this is Solomon speaking from experience that wife number two made her and him an adult and wife number 500 wasn't any better than wife number two. But yet when it says he lost his something in the congregation, think about the people that lived at that time. Are we the only people that look back on Solomon is being, even though he was so wise, is being foolish, and his weakness is exactly what he's talking about. I believe people that in his own nation, he lost a lot of influence with his people because they said, well, if he can do it, Right. It, it's just, it's amazing that talking from the spirit all the way through. Be aware of your uh, influence on others and, and being influenced for the good. Um, and, and we talk about Proverbs and there are multiple <clears throat> meanings that you could, could glean from this and, and they wouldn't be wrong. Um, we talk about adultery, literally adultery, um, being unfaithful to your spouse, uh, but also adultery as far as uh, idolatry. Yes, sir. No, yeah, go ahead, go ahead. Well, what also comes up here in this, in this little section, I think, drink the water from your own sister is talking about um, relationships with your wife. He also said, she just brings me scattered abroad, streams of water in the streets. In other words, would it be right for your wife to be available to anyone? city, community, and of course putting it in that terms, your reaction was such probably, well absolutely not. And so so I think Solomon's trying to say, so then why would it be any different for Right. It, it's the same. You each should enjoy each other. And I also I also like what he says there when he says, um, let them be for yourself alone and not for strangers with you. Let your fountain be glad rejoice in the wife of your youth. He's not saying rejoice in these things while you're young. Being saying, be faithful to the wife of your youth. When you first get married and you choose to, to commit your life to someone in that vow, it's a lifetime commitment. Stick with that vow. Absolutely. Stick with that wife of your youth all your life. To Wayne's point, it's ironic that Solomon would be giving this advice, but he comes from experience. It's a, it's a commitment. Um, and of course, our, our relationship <clears throat> with our spouse is a picture of our relationship with God. And remember that covenant. Don't break that covenant. And when the adulterous woman was first brought up in chapter 2, that's exactly what they said. She has broken her covenant with her God. So don't let that be you. And speaking of this covenant and this adultery, uh, the word cistern being used uh, called to mind Jeremiah chapter 2, uh, where God said, For my people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living waters, and hewn for themselves cisterns, broken cisterns that can hold no water. So God is the source of flowing water and life. And don't settle or try to replace any void, uh, any need that you feel you might have 
with anything else. Everything that we, every need that is within us, everything that we were created to need can be found in God. And every need that we have as a, a husband or wife can be found and should be found in our spouse. And thinking of God, you know, God has put eternity into our hearts. But we've got to be careful and we've got to learn to be satisfied and have a firm foundation in our relationship with God and to realize that He can fulfill any of these desires that we may have. And it's the same with, with our husbands or, or our wives. Um, so being careful not to go wandering about through this life, uh, just trying to fill a void with wrong things, wrong people, wrong places. Your wife should be the standard, your standard of view. So if your wife is your standard of view, if that's beautiful to you, how does anybody ever measure up that standard? If that's your standard. And of course we know that beauty is from within as well as can be external, but, right. but in the New Testament we read so many passages about where it comes from, it comes from within. Um, if that's your standard of view, and your wife is that standard for you as a man, why would you be attracted more? So right. you can admire things of beauty in other women, in other people, character traits, but why would you be more attracted to that? Straight point. And so the, the adulterous woman is is it's a she's offering a counterfeit to your wife. Um, but again, surface deep and we see where it leads. It's gonna lead to your death. Uh, again, earlier in chapter 5, she's as bitter as wormwood, which is a poison. Her feet go down to death. Okay? Bad news. Stay away. Don't go near the door of her house. That's the easiest way to avoid her, is to don't take the first step on that path. 4, verse 21, A man's ways are before the eyes of the Lord, and he ponders all his paths. You know, we talk about the nature of sin and the nature of folly in Proverbs so far, and it's a, there is secrecy involved with all of these sins from chapter 1 through chapter 5 so far. Um, and an adulterous situation is, is certainly that as well. There is secrecy involved. And maybe what he's trying to point out here is that you will be found out eventually. And you cannot be involved in an adulterous situation and keep it hidden from God. Um, there is no secret sin to the world that the Lord will not see. And there are so many uh, examples of this. I was thinking of Moses in Psalm 90, you've set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. So this presence of, in the presence of God, all sin is illuminated and completely exposed. Um, he ponders God, uh, capital H, he ponders all his paths. Any thoughts on that verse 21? 
correctly. God sees us even if we don't think anybody else does. But he knows the choices that we're making in life. He knows the things we choose to watch on TV. He knows our browser history. Yeah. <laughs> we view every choice we ever make. We may hide this for a while. The other thing I think it's interesting in this verse is that it's ensnaring. This becomes addictive. So, so I, I think the warning here is you may think that you can separate yourself from this at any moment, but the longer you go, just like any sin, the longer you go, the more ensnaring it is, the more difficult it is. Absolutely. I was thinking of uh, that secret sin of God and um, or in the presence of God in Psalm 130, I believe it is, um, when David says that if you, O Lord, should mark iniquities, who could stand? Because the Lord knows everything. And to stand, being a judicious term, to stand absolved from guilt in the presence of God, no one could stand. God sees everything. There is no secret sin to God. Um, but... With the Lord, there is forgiveness and steadfast love and mercy. So, but the fool will not benefit from the mercy of the Lord. And as Brother Chip said, the iniquities of the wicked, the iniquities of the fool ensnare him. He's held fast in the cords of his sin. Okay, literally enslaved, imprisoned, chained, tied up, unable to move. Because of who? Because of himself. And this is another example in this section here. You know, why does God send people to hell if he's such a loving, kind God? Well, he doesn't. We send ourselves, our own foolish decisions. Yes, sir. It talks about the lions and the wild beasts that are along the it's not only you. There's somebody out there trying to ensnare you. So when when it says God ponders the past, it might mean, you know, he thinks about those dangers that are out there along that path. And his warnings are, you know, there's a roaring lion that's seeking to devour. Have you ever see a nature channel where the, the lion or the... Or, or, Stalking, and, and, the, and the beast that they're stalking is totally that that thing is happening. But yet, when it gets on there, yeah. And that word ensnare is really interesting to me. Do y'all know how a snare works? Have you ever seen anybody lay a snare trap? That's such an interesting term. He doesn't just say that you're trapped. Um, and maybe I'm reading too much into this, but I always think about that word snare because it comes up so much throughout all of Holy Scripture. But the, the, the idea of a snare is that once that trap is set and an animal gets caught, it's caught, but the more that animal fights, the tighter that snare gets. And so if you think about that in, our, in the path of folly, we are trapped 
in sin, trapped in folly, but the more we fight to get out, the more we lie to try to get out of something or whatever the, the situation may be, the tighter and tighter that snare gets. We are ensnared and we're doing it to ourselves, held fast in the cord of his sin. And then ultimately, verse 23, he dies for lack of discipline. And because of his great folly, he is led astray. Strongest language that he could have used. He dies. Okay, this is a matter of life or death. And what would be the inverse of this? A verse, the beginning part of verse 23. If you die for a lack of discipline, what's the opposite? Life. There's freedom in discipline. And we all would do well to, to be reminded of that, but particularly teach this and explain this to our children and younger people that the path of the righteous demands discipline. And if you think about that, the word disciple, you know, it carries within it that meaning, that idea of discipline. Okay, we are to yoke ourselves to Jesus. Um, of all the things in Proverbs in years past when I have read through Proverbs, Discipline is one of the strongest messages that I've ever gotten from Proverbs. I've always thought of Proverbs as, you know, I read Ecclesiastes and I think, well, I'm going to be okay. You know, it's, you know, time and chance and, you know, don't, you know, Proverbs, you better get to work. This is going to take discipline. This is going to be hard. You know, and I'm always, I feel like I'm always torn between the two, between Ecclesiastes and Proverbs somewhere. But he dies for lack of discipline. And so this is an incredible message for young people. Um, and we see it all around us today. And from my personal experience, our kids are very young, but discipline and work and work ethic is life-changing. This is one of the biggest things that, that Solomon could teach his son is this idea of discipline. Uh, you think of Paul in 1 Timothy 4 Paul says to exercise yourself unto godliness. And that word exercise there in 1 Timothy 4 is the word uh, in the Greek from where we get our English word for gymnasium. So we are to practice and train ourselves, exercise ourselves. As we've been talking about almost in every chapter in Proverbs, we're not going to wake up and be wise one day. God is not going to be found accidentally or by osmosis. We're going to have to work. It's going to take discipline. And we have to understand this. For bodily exercise profiteth little, but godliness is profitable unto all things, having promise of the life that now is and of that which is to come. And that's something that our world understands. Uh, physical fitness. If you want to be fit, well, you know, you've got to be disciplined. You've got to eat the right things and exercise. The world understands that. But yet, in our spiritual lives, it's the same. There's great discipline on the path of wisdom and the path of God. And 
to understand that if we are not exercising this discipline and practicing this discipline and self-control and allowing the instruction of wisdom, God's wisdom, to govern our lives, that we are exercising ourselves in sin. And that's incredibly powerful. Second uh, Peter chapter 2, uh, Peter says that there are those that have their hearts trained in greed, trained, exercised in greed, exercised in covetousness. And so we have to discipline ourselves. Uh, Hebrews chapter 5 talks about the mature in Scripture, those who are eating the meat of Scripture, or those who have their powers of discernment trained and who constantly practice discerning good and evil. Whereas on the other side, there is the babe, the one that, though by reason of time they should be teachers, they're, they're drinking milk, they're sucking on a bottle, they're not able to, to fathom these rich principles of God and lessons uh, that God would have them to come to understand in their lives. So... Again, young people tend to think that discipline is no good, no fun, giving up something, uh, but it's, it's exactly the opposite. And, and, and even when, as we age, to understand that um, intentions, good intentions, are not going to get us to heaven. Does that make sense? Uh, the, you know, the classic saying, you know, the path to hell is paved with good intentions. We're going to have to work. We're going to have to actually exercise some restraint. And um, that's just an incredibly powerful message. Uh, any thoughts on chapter 5 before we continue on? Yes, sir. I was just thinking though, too, but I think we have to, with the discipline, too, it's okay for us to enjoy the fruits of our labor. Absolutely. Uh, with the language that he uses, I think, like back to 15 through 19 and 20, he is talking about enjoying the fruits of our relationship. Yes. And, and not viewing it maybe as as a ball and chain. Right. Which is what you receive actually in verses 20 through 23. Yeah. You know, he says enjoy and rejoice, you know, and, and I think, you know, we do put that discipline into our marriage, that work into our marriage, and we need to enjoy that. Same with our relationship with Christ. We, we need to take the time to enjoy that as well and think of the goodness of that. And it's not a ball and chain. In fact, the opposite is. That's a great point. Um, and, and in internalizing wisdom uh, in chapter 2, you know, it talks about wisdom coming into your heart and knowledge being becoming pleasant to your soul. So learning to enjoy that discipline and, and enjoy the freedom and peace that it, that it brings to your life. Did you have something, Ms. Teresa? It's 
written by a marriage counselor, and he said in his experience, a man can be very, uh, can grow accustomed and feel at ease loving two women. He can really love his wife and really love this other woman. And that it is very difficult. He has But he just misses this other woman so much that years, the idea of being ensnared, and it never leaves you are for You can serve before the Lord and be faithful, but major weakness within you that you would have to understand will always be suspect of that. That's a great point. You know, th this sin is one that, uh, again, it produces a, a, a ditch in our character. And, and if you continue in it, it produces a chasm and it will never leave you. Uh, and like we said, I mean, if it, God may forgive you, but you're still going, you're never going to be the same. You will be forever scarred uh, by this sin. Um, and not only yourself, but... And it's not just the way people are looking at you. Yeah. It is what you are having to battle for the rest of your life. Yeah. Yeah, it's uh, wise to stay away. Yes, sir. I would say that's true of any sin that is has ensnared you. If you are drawn to it in some way, it has ensnared you in some way. And even when you're forgiven and you go on with it, even though an alcoholic is always going to be an alcoholic, for example, it's something that will be, you'll fight the rest of your life. And so it's not necessarily unique to this kind of sin. Um, really, that's what Teresa said is exactly true. But I think there are other types of sin that is just as true. We get comfortable and rationalize anything that's wrong and do it long enough, it does become a habit. And even if you walk away from it, know that putting yourself in situations where that can happen again is not wise. And, uh, because you are prone. You've demonstrated to yourself right. you're prone. And that's avoid those situations as best you can because you know it. You've failed before. With God's help, you can overcome. But why tempt yourself? It's not God tempting you when you're putting yourself in those situations. That's a great point. Mr. Brian, do you have something? I, I thought I saw you raise your hand. So I was going to apologize for not calling on you. Um, great. Which goes back to what he said in the earlier verses. Don't even go near that. Right. You know, don't don't even go near. Stay far away from the door of her house. Don't even, not even remotely close. Don't even take the first step. Okay, and that's what he said about the enticement of sinners in chapter one. Don't even take the first step on that path. Uh, powerful chapter, powerful picture. Um, something that Solomon will bring up again. Uh, this uh, message, uh, this warning against adultery to the son is something that is woven in this, uh, this sermon, basically, that he is preaching in these first nine chapters. So it is obviously uh, incredibly important. There's, there's, there's certainly hope. 
Corinthians chapter 6, where, he, where Paul writes to them and he says, uh, don't be deceived. Fornicators, adulterers, idolaters, defendant homosexuals, thieves, covetous, or drunkards, or revilers, or swindlers, none of them will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you've been washed. You've been sanctified. You've been justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and the Spirit of God. So there's hope. There's hope in the strength we find in Jesus, and there's hope in the strength we find in our brothers and sisters in Christ. And, and that's a powerful message. And the path of wisdom is a message of hope and a message of peace. And there is no hope and there is no peace on the path of folly, on the contrary. And so we come to chapter 6. And this idea of discipline continues. And it plays out in a couple, uh, three examples here given of different types of folly. Okay, so different practical situations that can occur and practical advice given on how to handle ourselves and get out of these situations should they occur and we find ourselves uh, given to these. Uh, so the first type of folly that is mentioned in chapter 6 is <clears throat> that of a financial folly. So this is a, a practical situation that we could find ourselves in and then the wisdom to, uh, of how to get out. Uh, chapter 6 says, My son, if you have put up security for your neighbor and have given your pledge for a stranger, if you're snared, there's that word again, snared in the words of your mouth, caught in the words of your mouth, again, Words, the power of words comes up again and again and again in Proverbs. Then do this, my son, and save yourself, for you have come into the hand of your neighbor. Go, hasten, and plead urgently with your neighbor. Give your eyes no sleep and your eyelids no slumber. Save yourself like a gazelle from the hand of the hunter, like a bird from the hand of the fowler. This putting up security for your neighbor, I've always read the, the ESV uh, version of this, but the, the King James, that word surety, um, and, and perhaps other versions as well. And, I, and I, after studying this, I like that word better. I think that's a better word for what this situation is. And what, what's happening here? What does it mean to put up security for your neighbor? or surety for your neighbor. What's the situation all about? Co-signing a loan. Basically, you are saying that if your neighbor, I don't want to get into as much right now of a neighbor or a stranger, do you know this person, do you not, but you are saying that if this person defaults on this loan that you have the funds to pay it. Um, and there's a, a lot to that. But if it turns out that we weren't honest with ourselves, if it turns out that this person defaults on this loan and we don't have the money to pay it, then their actions, we are going to be liable for their actions. So this is a financial trap, okay, being liable 
for another person's debt. Um, what is y'all's opinion of how well that they know this person? What do y'all think? Is it a stranger or is it a neighbor? Is there a difference? Maybe irrelevant. Uh, for sake of time, we'll just continue on. Uh, at, at any rate, um, well, we'll pick up there next week. Thank everybody for your comments and look forward to continuing on next week.